Hello, this is episode 103 of Inside AgriTurf, and I'm your host Chris Biddle. Many thanks for joining me. For two years, the Farmers Weekly has published a listing of the UK's biggest farm machinery dealers ranked by turnover. My guest today is freelance agricultural journalist Peter Hill, who has painstakingly compiled the reports for Farmers Weekly, links to which are in the show notes to this episode. I spoke to Peter last year after the publication of the first listing, which was based on financial data for 2020. In recent weeks, Peter has followed that up with a further analysis based on dealers 2021 financials. So Peter, many thanks for joining me. Um, As a result of this latest report, do you get the impression that the rate of consolidation is accelerating, levelling out, or indeed slowing down? Hello, Chris. Yeah, thanks uh, for asking me back on your podcast. It always makes an interesting listen, and I hope I can contribute something that's worth listening. But yeah, to your question, it's certainly ongoing. My goodness, we've seen changes of uh, franchise, we've seen uh, acquisitions of smaller dealers, uh, and in some cases, quite large dealers by others. So the consolidation process, I think, is uh, clearly still going on. And I think it's quite noticeable that it's a lot of it is amongst the non-John Deere dealerships now. Just looking at the top 15 from the 2021 results, the sort of financial period, Deere now has seven of its dealers in that top 15. So they are very substantial businesses, and some of them, as we'll perhaps explore later, are still growing, compared with Agco having three, CNH four, and JCB with a couple. But John Deere started their consolidation process within the dealerships uh, earlier than anybody else, and I guess the other guys are looking to catch up with some bigger-scale dealers. Just to remind ourselves, on the basis of your findings, I remember from last year you said you drew up a list of 200 dealers from which most of this report is drawn, and then you broke that down into the top 45, the top 15 plus another 30. So was that the plan for this year as well? Yes, pretty much. I didn't need to go to the full 200 this time, thank goodness, otherwise I'd have been on it for months like last time, because there were quite a chunk of those, of course, were outside the scope of filing full accounts, which was only the basis that we could base it on. Yeah, so it was a little bit easier. So the focus was really on the top 45 from the previous year, plus then a few beyond that figure to just to double check in case anyone had grown sufficiently to warrant a place in that top 45 ranking. Okay, and I guess as far as the methodology is concerned, you've got a VIP pass to company's house. That is your main port of call, is it? It is, absolutely. In terms of what the dealers are doing, their news press releases and also their websites uh, reveal the acquisitions they're making, the investments they're making and that sort of thing. But certainly the public access to company's house and the accounts that have to be filed there are a very useful set of information. They not only provide the turnover figures for the larger companies, but also the management reports often are helpful in sometimes breaking down to the different activities that they're engaged in. For example, 
a lot of agricultural dealerships these days are involved in selling professional ground scare equipment, construction equipment as well. And so it's helpful to see how their structure is or their turnover is made up. Not everyone likes to reveal that information or can be bothered or whatever. In the cases where they do put that detail, then that's quite interesting, I think. Yeah, so it was a case of pulling those figures together and then seeing how, if any, had moved up the ranks or down the ranks or had new dealerships, as it were, coming into the top 15 and so on. So that was quite interesting to analyse. Did you get much feedback from the dealers concerned following the first report? And, and let's make it clear that your 2023 report refers to the 2021 trading year, does it? Yes, it does. Yeah, with a bit of sort of movement either way, because obviously not everyone has a January to December trading year. But that was broadly speaking, that was the the, the period covered. Uh, and do you get good cooperation from the dealers? Before you publish anything, do you uh, double check it? Do you tell the dealers uh, what you found and, and give them the chance to uh, question it or query it? We certainly did in the first um, version that I did, Chris. And I was pleased to say that I got very good feedback uh, and a positive response. I, I had half suspected that I might get one or two saying, no, we don't want this published, please, and all the rest of it. But that didn't happen at all, uh, which was very satisfying, really. And to be honest, this time around, it was only a case of uh, pulling out the figures that are publicly available and analyse those. This year, having, in the first edition, profiled the top 15, I then this year did just a short summary of what had happened amongst those top 15 ranking dealers, but then profiled the subsequent 15. Space restrictions meant I had to keep those very brief, so there was nothing controversial or anything like that, and and so it all went through, and, and, and nobody's come back to me. And, and you mentioned other areas that dealers get into, as you say, ground care, uh, construction, vehicles uh, and, and the like. How easy or, or challenging is it to actually split out? Because I think when you say the biggest dealers, I think most people would say, yeah, it, this is Farmers Weekly and this, this is really to do with tractors and agricultural machinery. Are you able to successfully strip out those? Absolutely impossible, unfortunately, Chris. <laughs> yes, it would, be, it would be nice to do that. And interesting that you should raise that because I, the only one comment that Farmers Weekly did get back from a reader was contesting that it was unfair that a company who was exclusively selling agricultural equipment was outranked by a company that sold also construction equipment. But I was quite comfortable with the fact that these groups are dealing with machinery. They are all selling agricultural machinery. Many of them are now selling, as I mentioned before, professional grounds care and compact construction equipment. And although it would be nice individually to pull out the agricultural element, those other activities do support a business that is supplying services and has the scale and the resources to look after their farming customers so i think as an overall business that's i would see that as a strength rather than necessarily anything negative um, before we delve into some of the, the detail perhaps did you also get any sense of, of how the profitability was uh, compared with uh, previous years because obviously in 2020 on which your first report was compiled was covid year 
So dealers, in many respects, in 2021 would have been in recovery mode from COVID. Did that come through as an overall impression? It, it did, actually. Yes, it was quite clear amongst all the 45, pretty much uh, every single one of them uh, re- reported increased turnover. And clearly, a lot of that will have been as a result of the easing supply chain that was still a, a, a considerable difficulty, and that's still ongoing now to a, a much lesser extent. I didn't actually look at profitability. I, I thought, A, I was trying to pull together enough figures that my head could cope with as it was. But also, I thought that publicising profitability of business was an even more sensitive <laughs> a yeah. topic, and I kept clear of that. But maybe it's something I will do in future. And I just need to look and see whether there are consistent figures that are produced by the filing companies. However, exclusively for you, Chris, I did actually have a look amongst the top 15 to see if there was any sort of comparisons I could make. And I managed to pull out, there's about seven or eight, I think it was, companies who gave their gross profit margin. And I thought that was quite interesting because the average of that number came out at just under 14% gross profit margin, which I think some people would consider to be quite healthy. Mm. But it actually ranged from 6%, which was the lowest figure, to a high of more than 22%. And so there's clearly a range of profitabilities there. And of course, as the saying goes, turnover is vanity profit is sanity, something along those lines. Actually, the profitability of those dealerships is is an interesting point. And it's it's something that if I've given the chance to do this again next year, then it's something I might try and pull out and explore a bit further. Indeed. Are you happy to go into some of the detail that you found? For instance, the headlines of uh, 2021. And who were the sort of movers and shakers in your list? Yeah, there there were two companies that came into that top 15 for the first time. Hunt Forest Group being one of them, the John Deere dealers down in the uh, south-southwest of England. And although they had considerable organic growth in their own business, uh, they also had acquired their fellow John Deere dealer, Smart Agricultural Services. And that was quite a substantial business. So as a result, their turnover from 2020 to 2021 was an extraordinary 78%, climbing up to 102.7 million. So suddenly that was a much, much bigger business than it was before, with an attendant increase in the number of employees and branches and, and that sort of thing. And then also Russell's group, they entered the top 15, 41% turnover increased from the previous year, which is a very substantial figure. And in part, that was to do with their purchase of the Platts-Harris Group's agricultural dealerships in Nottinghamshire, Derbyshire and and South Yorks. But that was quite late in 2020. It'll be interesting to see the figures that come out next to see what full impact that had made. In terms of the others, I've just made a few notes here, which I'm now digging up on my computer. After those Chandlers, of course also recorded a big jump in their turnover, 71% up. And that was as a result of acquiring the Lister Wilders Agco business. And then also Farrell's, they were up 36% from the previous year. 
and that part of that will have come from acquiring a larger trading area, which had an impact for that trading year. TH White, they were up 32%. And again, there was an acquisition there in terms of the Murley agricultural business, which I think gained them about £8 million in turnover. So again, there will be presumably, and not always one plus one makes two, of course, in these situations, but the following years, the 22 figures should be up even further, I would think. And then at the very top of the table, you may recall that Class, with its retail branches, topped the table in 2020, and they were pipped to the post by Scott JCB, who gained 46% in turnover. And funny enough, that's, of course, a case in point to your earlier comment about is it fair to compare companies that sell construction equipment as well as agricultural and as I mentioned, although there's the practical difficulty, if they don't split out the two, it's impossible to tell what's what. And I suspect that a lot of that 46% increase will have come from a big recovery in construction equipment sales because the previous year, of course, construction was flat on the floor because of the COVID epidemic and so on. But they sell a lot of agricultural equipment, JCB throughout Scotland and parts of Northern England, and also the Massey Ferguson and other brands through their agricultural dealerships. Just just on the point, again, away from the figures for a moment, it did strike me, when biggish companies take over other biggish companies, Platts, Harris and so on, do they tend to keep the names sometimes. Obviously, with Hunt Forest, that's an amalgamation of two distinct dealerships into one one company name. But obviously, in a lot of areas, a particular dealer will have had a very strong name. Did you come across anybody that has actually just kept the original name? Yeah, I'm pretty certain that, that does occasionally occur. And as you say, if it's got a very strong local brand, to use the modern term, then there is a risk that you alienate customers simply by changing it to your grand group title. So that, that does happen occasionally. They will keep the name maybe for, a, maybe for a certain period. And interestingly, I thought when Chandler's acquired the Ross Farm Machinery Group business, although they didn't keep Ross Farm Machinery in, in total, they've the business, that section of the business is named Chandler's RFM. They are keeping an element of the previous name for customer familiarity, and that seems to me quite a sensible approach with that. But it's sometimes a big decision, nonetheless. But what do you think the main driving force to this consolidation is? Obviously, much of it, uh, Peter, is manufacturer-driven, but it's also driven by families who've coming up to retirement and there's no succession in place and so on. It does seem to me that in a lot of these cases I've looked at in your listing, that may well have been a very strong factor. Yeah, it is. Both of those situations certainly apply. And it might also be because someone wants to retire and there's no succession Nobody from the family, maybe, who wants to come in, or maybe if it's a partnership, they haven't got a means of moving it on, that sort of thing. For example, with Oliver's acquisition of LQG Agri, one of their neighbouring JCB dealers, I believe that was the case. The principal wanted to retire, and so, in effect, he cashed in his years of hard work 
building up that business, that, of course, is what some people would be in business for, to build up a, a company with a useful value that they can then cash in as a rather nice lump sum pension almost. <laughs> but clearly, the main driving factor is simply one of scale. And this is certainly where the John Deere approach has come from. The bigger the dealership grouping in a sense, the more efficient potentially they could be because you're spreading your back office costs across a much larger business. Uh, I think potential dangers in the sense that a lot of farming customers don't necessarily like dealing with what they see as a almost like a large conglomerate, if you like. You have to except that a bigger company probably has opportunities to invest in premises, in manpower, in resources, and particularly to do with precision farming or spraying technology. People don't just walk into your showroom and say, yeah, I'll have a £25,000 precision farming package, please. It's a very technical subject, and these larger dealers are now employing specialists who focus purely on that side of things, because it's no longer just a sort of add-on. It's a key element of agricultural equipment and tractors and harvesters in particular. So they need that knowledge and expertise. Indeed. Do you think that we might be getting towards peak consolidation or do you think there's still a lot of opportunity for larger and larger dealers? I'm sure there's more to come. I'm trying to think of what the reason would be not to have dealers going any bigger. I suppose that would come down to management ability. Finance, presumably. Finance, indeed, yeah. Gosh, these dealerships, the the way they must be financed is uh, extraordinary, really. But anyway, they seem to manage to do it. Will there be a big change? One thing that has struck me in recent recent years is the inexorable increase in machinery prices. And I don't know, frankly, I don't know how farmers manage to afford them, (laughs) to be honest, because the the, uh, yields from cereal crops, I think, are still increasing to some extent, but at a much slower rate than they have done in the past. So that implies that uh, farm incomes are increasingly under pressure. Yeah, so maybe it will become tougher to sell equipment and maybe that will have an impact on what you might call high-cost dealerships. Last time we talked, we, we did mention what's happening outside the UK and whether or not there was room in the UK for new entrants, obviously looking in, in towards the Indian uh, subcontinent. There, there's quite a lot of manufacturers over there who from time to time have made overtures towards this market but setting up a comprehensive dealership really comes down to the availability of dealerships and to staffing and finance do you see any movement in that respect not a great deal we've got a couple of indian manufacturers for example who have come in and they're working in grounds care area in particular because they've got obviously a low-cost tractor offering and a simple tractor offering which is what is often needed in that sector, less so in agriculture these days. Even the simplest of livestock farms seem quite interested in buying better equipped, safer, more efficient tractors than they might have been in the past. I think perhaps resale value, of course, has a 
uh, a significant thing to play in that sort of area because uh, if you go to a, uh, the extreme of buying a very basic uh, tractor even from a mainline manufacturer at some point the dealer supplying it will want to take it back and sell it on so i think it's fair to say that has prompted some of the high spec tractors that we see particularly on arable farms because when it comes to shifting them they will be in demand from markets perhaps in Ireland and elsewhere in Europe and, and even further beyond that. So I think there is limited scope and we've seen, for example, the, the Chinese try to establish a new, as it were, Italian brand of tractor, must have put in enormous amounts of cash to develop that line and that's all gone Belly up, shall we say, to put it politely. <laughs> oh, I had uh, the paper button ready. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That that project is no more. I, I think establishing a new brand, particularly difficult, even establishing a brand that may well be established elsewhere and bringing it in is a very difficult job. And frankly, you look at the dealer network and even established names amongst the smaller tractor manufacturers Getting dealers of a significant calibre is really difficult for them. And the, and one of the other problems I've noticed is that it seems that they might bring on a sort of one-man band type smaller dealership. They help them become more professional. Their tractor sales increase. And then, hey, presto, one of the big brands has a gap in their network. They see these guys doing well. Here's an offer from us, and you can have all our implements and everything else that goes with it as well. The other area, I know you do a lot of work in Europe. That You mentioned in our last podcast about the growth of some dealers in Scandinavia that really got into the agricultural machinery market fairly recently and had grown really grown quite quickly. Do you see that trend being exported outside those regions? Yeah, certainly possible, Chris, and I'm impressed by your memory. I have to say that you remember that particular bit, or maybe you listened to the last podcast before we no, came No, on. I do have a transcription but, of it. Ah, there you go. I thought you must have some crib sheet somewhere. But yes, it was Danish Agro who were actually entered the machinery market literally from scratch about six or seven years ago, I think it was, possibly a bit more, and very rapidly developed a network in Denmark and uh, other Scandinavian countries, and indeed have interests in um, one or two uh, European countries outside what you might consider the Scandinavian area. I think they were probably an exception to the rule. They clearly had the resources to be able to make some acquisitions. They obviously had a very good relationship with their major supplier class, and, and, and they obviously had a very clear idea that this is where they wanted to go. I've not come across any other groups that are in that quite that same frame of mind or have those sort of resources to hand. We should see. It's, it's certainly possible. It may well happen in the UK even when you consider the scale of the acquisitions that a group like Chandler's have made, for example. And it's still ongoing, of course. Earlier this year, they bought Keith Davies Agricultural, the dealership in Shropshire, which will build on their acquisition of Ross Farm Machinery across uh, across on the west of England, and they've obviously got ambition to get bigger and bigger. They well, may come. A, they may. What's interesting, I think, Chris, is they may come a point where some of these bigger dealerships 
say, this is about as far as we can go in the UK. Can we now look to other countries to start making acquisitions? That would be an interesting one. They'll have to go and a few language lesson classes, I suspect, for one thing. In the States, there is a big dealership group that has acquired a number of dealerships in, I think, Austria and Germany and one or two other countries. Titan, thank you, yes. Your memory is better than mine. Yeah, Titan Machinery. Uh, They've they've got quite a significant presence amongst European Mm. dealerships now. And maybe um, somebody's going to do the same. Look, Peter, do you, I get what you're saying, that, that, that actually the UK dealer network in general is in pretty rude health, pretty good health, bearing in mind the amount of activity that's going on. And would you concur with that? I think it is, yeah. And I, I think one of the most interesting cases recently, which perhaps illustrates that, is the uh, Ray Valley Tractors' decision to jump out of bed with John Deere because of a situation that they were presented with which they considered to be untenable, and to go with New Holland, the reward being a much bigger trading area with New Holland, which stands them in good stead. Switching from one brand to another is a major jump, and it's going to take a while to to see how sales will go. It'll be interesting to look at their turnover figure for the 2022 trading year. But clearly they've got ambition because they not only uh, took on that bigger area and they increased the JCB trading area as well at the same time, but of course we most recently heard that they have an agreement in principle at least to acquire Team Valley tractors, so further growth in their mid Wales and North Wales stronghold. So clearly they've got determination and ambition and resources to, to go that way. And clearly the bigger dealers who are making acquisitions are doing much the same. With that, you've led me beautifully into really a, a trailer for what follows your podcast here. Is, uh, and it's an area that really does fascinate me, uh, not necessarily the the story behind the acquisition or the change of franchise, but how a dealer who for years has been telling his customer that brand A is the best since sliced bread then turns around and said, no, it's not now, it's brand B. And the impact that has on customers and the staff and so on, it's a fascinating challenge and one that I've already talked to one manufacturer in an episode that is coming up about the manufacturer's role or the new manufacturer, the new supplier's role in actually helping the dealer in that area. But it is a fascinating area and I hope we might get some insight into that. But in the meanwhile, Peter, can I thank you once again, most sincerely for yet again, an absolutely fascinating document, if I could call it that. And I look forward to the coming issues over the years, if you can stand the late nights and the post-it notes and the black coffee and whatever the ingredients of putting this together are. Indeed, yes, I hope that's the case because I find it very interesting. It makes a change from the technical spec stuff that I write about in terms of how wide is this implement and how many hydraulic rams it's got, etc. I've always taken an interest in the trade of farm machinery because I think it's a fascinating business. I should just mention, incidentally, if I may, Chris, that both editions of the articles are still available on the Farmers Weekly website, fwi.co.uk. And I'd also just like to mention, you asked me about feedback the other day, sorry, earlier in the broadcast about the first edition. I was very pleased 
that I won a runners-up prize in the British Guild of Agricultural Journalists Awards sponsored by Perkins Engines, which I was absolutely delighted with, of course. It'd be nice to have won, not least because the prize money is more, but I was very pleased that article was considered interesting and good enough to get the runner-up prize this year. So I'll be trying again for next year. Excellent. And it was remiss of me not to mention that fact, but congratulations. Any kind of recognition like that is is always very welcoming. And I will, just on the question of the reports, I do have the links that they will go into the show notes for this episode so readers can access them and really draw out of them what all the fascinating information that's there. So once again, Peter, many thanks. It's great to catch up. I, well, I'll put a diary note in for about a year's time, but thank you once again. Again, and, and, and very best of luck in all your research. Thank you, Chris. That was fascinating stuff from Peter. Our next episode will feature David Hart, Managing Director of Kubota UK, who will talk about the incoming manufacturer's role when a dealer decides to change its lead franchise. I'm Chris Biddle. Thank you for joining me for Inside Agriturf.